Let's pray together as we stand. Father, as we come to your word, um, every single one of us comes uh, from a different place. Uh, we have a different story, each of us. Uh, we have a different story with you. Some of us are, are just trying to figure out whether or not you're there and whether or not you're trustworthy. And some of us are, are learning to trust you more deeply. And as we come to your word, we ask, we just said we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we do, and, and we trust that you will impart your Holy Spirit, that you will increase the work of your Holy Spirit, that you'll grant that any obstacle to uh, the work of your Spirit would be set aside in our hearts and lives, uh, and that you would do precisely what it is that you, uh, that we need. So we invite you, we look to you away from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, so, would you please turn back to the Colossians passage? Uh, that was the first epistle reading, or the first reading the epistle that came from the epistle. And um, we... Uh, uh, you will probably already be right now appreciate that we have some work to do, and uh, we have some delicate work to do. Uh, each week over the la these last months, we have been reading through the, uh, the epistle of Colossians, and each week we take an, a paragraph, and this, these are the paragraphs that we need to work with today. And, um, and let me just say, I am acutely aware that as we uh, come to this reading, for some of us, just having it read out loud will uh, spark and trigger some uh, extremely strong objections and real difficulties. And I know that some of us, <clears throat> some of us, I, I could imagine some of us saying something like, even if you don't say it explicitly this way, something like, I knew it. I knew those Christians, you know. Um, it's all fine when they're talking about Jesus. But that reading there, I can imagine somebody saying, that reading there has the seeds of misogyny. I can imagine somebody saying, not only that, it carries the seeds in much, and perhaps more, of, of slavery, of inequality. Why are we talking about this right now? How dare we talk about this? And I can imagine somebody else saying, um, listen, it's fine when we're listening to the sayings of Jesus, but, but Paul wrote this, and I'm out. I'm out. Um, this is going to be a little heavier sermon. So just, just everybody breathe for a second. I, I'm not even going to try to, you know, this is going to be heavier, okay? And um, some of those objections carry just a titanic force right now. Uh, precisely because of our cultural moment. Um, I don't even need to name some of the things that are happening right now. I mean, I, you know, uh, the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein, um, the hell experienced by um, women gymnasts and athletes at Michigan State, and all the unspeakable horror that, you know, those... Those experiences, name them. 
And so that's what's on our minds right now. But the, the, the horror is that which is not named. That which is right now secret. Horror. And the reality is our, our, the soul of our country is in trauma. And I'm very self-aware that um, th- the perpetrators of much of that trauma are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. And one of those is standing behind this pulpit right now. And then, as if that wasn't enough, I'm aware that wicked men have used this passage and others like it for wicked ends. So there are a lot of reasons to check out right now. And I feel the force of those objections. Having said that, I'm going to ask us all to do a hard thing. Can I ask us to take the next 20 minutes, probably it'll be 20 minutes, and fully engage this reading? And here's why. Christians love the Bible. Why do Christians love the Bible? We love the Bible for many reasons, but central to it is that the more we listen to the scripture, the more we see Jesus. And by definition, a Christian is somebody who uh, sees that Jesus is the most compelling person in the world. That the more clearly we see Jesus, the more we see um, just the center of all that is beautiful in this world and all that is beautiful beyond this world. And that the clearer we see Jesus, the more we find out who we are really meant to be. We find out who we are as we look at Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. And that happens as we listen to the scriptures. Now, Sometimes we come to passages, very often we come to passages where we hear them and immediately we say, yes, I see him, I see Jesus, and it's wonderful. And we don't even have to, we don't even hardly have to do anything but read it out loud and our hearts sing. But then sometimes we come to passages, maybe like this one for you, and you look at it and you say, that looks frightening. That sounds like people that I can't trust. And what do we do when we come against that passage? And what I want to ask us to do is to ask a hard question and say, Jesus, will you show me how I can trust you even with a passage like this? And if that question is in, is in your mind, Jesus, can I trust you with a passage like this? Is some of your beauty still in this passage? I don't see it on the surface. You're going to have to show me. If that question can be before our minds, then I think we will find I think we will find that this reading gives absolutely no license to abuse. But rather, this reading gives a number of examples of a larger dynamic in Scripture that calls us, all of us, to Jesus Christ. And there at the feet of Jesus Christ, we find that all of our relationships get redefined and reframed. And we we find that we are to... Uh, reflect Jesus's character in every single relationship that we have. Whether we're married or whether we're single. We're going to talk a lot about marriage today, but this is not to exclude our single people. Some of it applies. All right. All that's a big claim. You don't have to buy it. Okay? And let me also say this. I'm aware that many things that can be said here uh, can trigger pain that I can't anticipate. And so I invite you 
to challenge me on this. Let's let this open up conversation rather than close it down. Is that all right? Okay, well, here we go. We're going to spend most of the time on husbands and wives, almost no time on uh, parents and children, for time's sake, and a little bit, very inadequate amount of time on the last bit about bond servants and masters. Here we go. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, that command, do everything uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, do everything to honor the Lord Jesus, really sort of sums up Christian ethics. Here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he says, consistently redefines every single Christian command that, that comes at us. So, the more you look at Jesus the more you will understand the rationale for a particular Christian command, uh, the way we are supposed to obey it, and why it's a good idea to obey it. Um, and that's why Paul sums up, in a sense, everything he's been arguing through Colossians, and he says the fundamental ethical uh, implication of all of this is whatever you do in every sphere of your life, do everything to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, now, for, let me give you some for instances. Okay, this isn't all of it, but this is just a couple of for instances. Wives, one of the ways you honor the Lord Jesus Christ is through this thing called submitting. We'll talk about it in a minute. Husbands, one of the ways you honor the Lord Jesus Christ is through this thing called loving. Now, here's why I say that and why that's really important. If you want to know what it means for husbands to love in this situation and what it means for wives to submit and all the rest of it, then what you can do is look at Jesus Christ and the more you look at him, the more things will become clear. Jim, nothing you've said is clear yet. Okay, I hear you. Let's do, let's try it out. Take a look at the gospel reading, okay? Flip over uh, to John 13. <clears throat> Let me set the stage. This is the night uh, that Jesus is arrested. He's, this is his last few hours with his disciples. And he dies the next day. And in this reading, Jesus redefines what it is that he means by love. Take a look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. Okay, now, it's a beautiful line, but what does it mean? How does, here's my question, how does Jesus love his disciples to the end? Well, what he does, if you read the rest of it, is he gets up, he takes a towel, he kneels down, and he washes the disciples' feet, which is offensive to Peter, isn't it? In other words, Jesus voluntarily, follow this, he voluntarily sets aside his dignity, not that he doesn't have it, but he, he sort of sets it aside for a moment in order to become a servant for those whom he loves. And that's just the rehearsal because uh, the next day Jesus dies on the cross and that's, that's the main event. That's what it is that he means by love. And from this point onward, whenever Christians 
talk about love, or at least whenever the New Testament commands us to love, that's what it means. It means set aside your dignity, become a servant, and give your life, pour out your life for the eternal flourishing of the person you're loving. Just like Jesus poured out his life for your eternal flourishing. That's what we mean by love. What do you mean by love? Okay, take that definition for love and park it like right here. Now let's pick up this thing called submission. Go back to Jesus. A few hours after this, uh, a few hours after Jesus washed his, his disciples' feet, um, he was praying. We know this from the other Gospels. He was praying, and um, all things being equal, it's clear from his prayer that Jesus did not want to die. He didn't want to do it. He said, Father, is there another way? I don't want to do it. But then Jesus says, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Now, it's a remarkable moment because Jesus in that moment submits to the Father. Now, follow me and think this through, okay? <clears throat> Uh, the Bible and all of Christian tradition teaches that uh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God in three persons. And that those three persons are absolutely equal with each other. They're equal in dignity, they're equal in authority, they're equal in every other way. And at the same time, Christian tradition, uh, distilling biblical data, says that um, when God decided to create the universe and to redeem uh, the universe, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit voluntarily took specific roles in getting that larger mission done. Now, bring that back to Jesus and the Father. What's happening when Jesus goes to the cross? Well, Jesus voluntarily and without coercion, extremely important, voluntarily and without coercion chose to submit to someone who is his equal. God the Father is his equal. He voluntarily and without coercion uh, uh, submitted to an equal in order to pursue their common mission together. And it ends up that that's Jesus' path to glory. Look up uh, Philippians chapter 2. That was his path to glory. Can't go into it. Now, that is the model of Christian submission. Let me illustrate this, uh, and then we'll bring all of this back to the passage in marriage. Um, I'm the pastor of this church, yeah? At least that's what they tell me. Um, and uh, and uh, Julian Dobbs is our bishop. Now, Julian, uh, in other ways, it, it, Julian's my equal, right? Um, however, I am called to voluntarily, without coercion, submit to his godly leadership in pursuit of the church's mission. 
Now, why is the church set up that way? Well, part of the reason the church is set up that way is that the church is to be an intentional community designed to reflect Jesus's character. And therefore, the church in its leadership structure, the whole thing of it is meant to um, uh, reflect Jesus's character. And therefore, there there will be Jesus-shaped love and Jesus-shaped submission, all aimed at common mission together. So it's critically important that I submit to Julian Dobbs, and I'm delighted. I'm I'm delighted to do so. It's a privilege. Okay, everybody, breathe, breathe. Okay, here we go. Let's bring all this back to marriage. Verse nineteen: Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, that was an unprecedented command in that culture very important that we understand that. It doesn't pop out to us, but it popped out to them. That was the thing that made all of them gasp, not the other part. In that culture, no one questioned the absolute right of a husband and a father to do with his family as he would. And Paul comes now based on Jesus's redefinition of love and redefinition also of um, family and marriage. G uh, Paul comes now and applies that and says, husbands, you are to honor Jesus by loving your wife just like Jesus loves you. But differently, Paul says, husbands, take your dignity, set it over here. And spend your life becoming a servant. Spend your life, if it kills you, spend your life pursuing the eternal flourishing of your wife. No cost is too high, because no cost can match the cost with which Christ purchased you. Now, I hope you can see that that is a demanding call. And it's a revolutionary call, and it's why Paul adds, just to be clear, and do not be harsh with them. Friends, he was uh, addressing a culture saturated with misogynistic abuse. We need to hear it the same way. And now things, if things haven't been sober, things are going to get a little bit more sober for a few minutes, okay? Christian husbands, Jesus loves you, and he gave his life for you. And when he gave you your wife, he said, look at this wonderful gift I'm giving you. I want you to honor me by spending the rest of your life pouring out your soul in loving her like you, like I have loved you. And that'll be part of your path to glory. Now, one of the things that that means is that the way you treat your wife reflects what you think of the cross of Christ. And that means any kind of abuse against your wife is not only a crime against her. Grievous though that is, it is a cross against Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and again, it takes away the sin of the world. It means that physical abuse and emotional abuse and sexual abuse and manipulation and neglect and infidelity, whether enacted 
or imagined is a crime against the cross of Christ. And you must feel the weight of that. Because Christian husbands, if we will not have Jesus as our Savior, then we will most certainly have him as our judge. And on that day, we will face him. We just said we believe Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. We will stand before him, and he will want to know. Don't imagine he won't. He will want to know how we treated our wives. And we do not have the capacity to fear that day enough. I've been a pastor long enough to know uh, that Christian marriages, secretly, horrible things can occur. And so I say, with all that is within me, be warned. Christ stands as your Savior. Don't play with him. Okay, moving on. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, now remember how Christian submission works, friends. It's when uh, one Christian submits to an equal without coercion voluntarily in pursuit of Jesus' mission. And so the plan for Christian marriage is that both of them are an intentional community where uh, both sides reflect the character of Jesus in complementary ways so that the the husband uh, spends his life uh, in self-sacrificial love. That's just his focus. And then the wife uh, responds by consenting to his godly leadership. And that takes courage. There's no getting around it. It takes courage. In fact, it takes the same sort of courage that Jesus displayed when he went to the cross. It is a, it is sanctified by God himself. And it only makes sense because Jesus went to the cross for you. I, I'm afraid that sometimes we miss the fact that Jesus, his, the cross of Christ redefines marriage. That Jesus, redefines Christian marriage so that it is meant, it's different than other visions of marriage, in part because Jesus uh, designs it to be an intentional community aimed at honoring him by reflecting his character and reflecting the gospel in every way possible. Husbands reflecting his self-sacrificial love, wives reflecting his self-sacrificial submission. But it's important that we point out a few things that it does not mean. Submission, friends, does not mean doormat. There are no doormats in the church and in discipleship. Last week, uh, we saw that Paul commands every Christian to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And that means that wives are commanded to teach and admonish their husbands in appropriate ways. I've been on the receiving end of that. Very helpful. It never means putting up with abuse. Never. 
And it doesn't mean unqualified obedience. The word submit here is not the word obey. They're both in the text. They're used differently. Um, it includes, it can include obedience, but it's a more subtle idea. It means that the wife cultivates a heart posture that expects that one of the ways that Jesus will lead you is through the godly counsel and encouragement and uh, direction of her husband. And I realize that in saying that, it's it's all a bit vague and, and fuzzy. And, and part of that is because both love and submission are heart postures, and, and therefore they, they get worked out a little differently in different marriages. Okay? It takes wisdom. But the key is that the Christian husband and the Christian wife stand together before Jesus saying, Jesus, we want our marriage to be that intentional community that reflects your character and your gospel. Do in us whatever it takes and do between us whatever it takes to get that done. We are here for you because you have been here for us. We surrender to you. In other words, it's meant to display the, be the trustworthy beauty of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, uh, if I had time, I could show that, that the same is true of, of parents and children, Christian families. That the, the same dynamic is supposed to be at play there, too. But I don't have time, so I need to say something about bond servants and masters, slaves and masters. Now, scholars think that... Um, Perhaps as much as a third of the uh, of Colossae and the, the, that culture was composed of slaves, and uh, so slavery was everywhere. And the many slaves became Christians, and many slave owners became Christians. And so pastorally, Paul has to deal with it, and he's dealing it from an, a vantage point of a very little political power. He's he's in, in prison. And what he does here works differently than what he does with the family. When you look at it on the page, it looks like it's all parallel, but it is importantly different. Because when uh, Paul applies the principle of honoring Jesus to Christian marriage and the family, it ends up redefining the mission of the family, but it ends up fundamentally strengthening it. On the other hand, when he applies it to the relationship between slave, slaves and masters, it, it redefines how they relate to each other in such a way that uh, the fundamental logic of slave slavery uh, begins to disintegrate. And I want to try to show you this uh, quickly. It's going to be inadequate. I know it will provoke questions. I invite them. Okay. Okay. I want to show you that, that, that the logic of slavery begins to be turned upside down. Look at verse 24. I'm going to do this really quick. Paul tells slaves... Jesus is going to give you an inheritance. Live your life honoring Jesus and he will give you an inheritance. Now, that's charged language because it's a contradiction in terms. Slaves don't get those. Slaves don't get inheritances. Paul comes in and he says, Jesus is changing the rules. Or look at masters. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word master there is Lord. What he's saying is, Masters, you've got a master. What do you mean, Masters have a master? What do you mean, Masters are accountable? That God will judge uh, the wicked, as he says in uh, verse 25. What do you mean they're accountable? Paul says, Jesus is changing the rules, guys. 
So what you have here is you have masters who are now servants of Jesus, and you have slaves who are heirs of Christ. Now, I can imagine somebody coming back at me and saying, okay, that's lovely little judo, but the system's still in place. To which I respond, yeah, no, you're right. However, we have a little bit of information about how this was originally applied, which is interesting. Let me tell you the story. Uh, this letter that we're reading, the letter to the Colossians, was delivered to Colossae from Paul by the hands of two men. One man who delivered it was named Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave, but he carried another letter as well. He carried both the letter to the Colossians and also a letter to his own master from Paul. We have that letter. It's called Philemon. Read it. Now, in Philemon, in the letter from Paul to this slave owner, uh, Paul does not outright command Philemon to release Onesimus. However, he is, he is both polite and subtle and pretty suggestive. Let me give you some quotes. He, he says this. He says, Philemon, we're partners in the gospel. I desire that you would, here's a quote, have Onesimus no longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. What does that do to the relationship? Later on, he says, Philemon, if you consider me to be your partner in the gospel, then receive Onesimus just like you would receive me, an apostle. Then he says, if, you owe, if Onesimus owes you anything, like financially, charge it to my account. And then finally, he says this, Onesimus, or I mean Philemon, I am confident of your obedience, knowing that you're going to do more than I've asked. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how Philemon responded. However, every indication, the fact that we even have it, that it didn't get trashed by Philemon, indicates that he must have dealt with it. And Eastern Orthodox tradition tells us that Philemon liberated Onesimus, and that both men became bishops of different cities, that Philemon the slave owner became bishop of Gaza, and that Onesimus the slave became bishop of Ephesus. We can't be sure historically of those specifics, but we do know, we do have an early second century document that names the bishop of Ephesus as Onesimus. And in the letter to the church at Ephesus, it's one of the only times in the early church fathers where the letter to Philemon is echoed. Which is to say, the Eastern Orthodox tradition has a sporting chance. Now, remember the question at the beginning. Don't worry, we're landing. The question at the beginning, can I trust you, Jesus, with a troubling passage like this? Is there anything of your beauty in this passage? And I hope that you can see, begin to see, and I know that this hasn't put away all the trouble, but I, begin, I hope you can, can begin to see the way the beauty of Jesus Christ transforms how we relate to each other. These are a couple examples 
marriage and, and, and some other examples of the family, but the same principle applies to those of us who are single and in every situation in our lives. What this is calling us to do is to look at Jesus and keep looking at him until you can see his beauty and tell the cross of Jesus Christ is not just a historical event that you can kind of affirm and say, yeah, you know, ish, kind of nice teachings, but know that it becomes, it comes to ravish your life. It becomes to define who you are, that you can look at Jesus and you can say, I have been adopted by God's own death in Christ. And now I'm a child of God with infinite dignity because Jesus Christ has shared his dignity with me. And therefore, now I follow him on the hard path of the cross where I take my dignity, I set it aside in order that I might have the greater dignity of following him in the path of the cross and in service to others. Enjoy. That is our path. Amen.